Good morning, church. Can you hear me? I'm on. Excellent. All right. Don't act like you haven't seen a preacher on crutches before. <laughs> it's, um, it's really too bad that our sermon text for today is at Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. <laughs> I'd have a great excuse for propping my foot up on display for you all morning, but... Um, as it were, my name is uh, Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills, and it's, uh, it's great to be with you, and it's especially great to have you with us, uh, especially if you're, if you're new here to West Hills. Welcome. Uh, we love, love visitors. We love our church. We love Jesus, and we love to share him with, with you and our fellowship with you, so thanks for being here. Um, our scripture passage for this morning is not Romans 10, but it is 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. And uh, unless both of your legs are out of commission, I would invite you uh, to stand with me. I'm going I'm to do it. And so uh, let's stand out of respect, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And I will read uh, this passage for this morning for us. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for giving it as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, to give guidance and direction to our souls. So, Father, we pray that as we now seek to humble ourselves and submit ourselves under the authority of your word, that your Holy Spirit would come, speak into our hearts and our minds, open our ears to hear you, your word in the same way that you inspired Peter to write these words. Would you move and stir in our souls, draw us closer to you, help us to understand your love for us more this morning. We'll give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you are new to West Hills, <clears throat> we're in the middle right now of our series in First Peter, and so we, we do primarily expository preaching here, so instead of kind of coming up with a, a topic we want to talk about and finding scripture to support it, we seek primarily to uh, just open God's word and preach through whole books of the Bible at a time, and again, submit ourselves to its authority, apply it as we go, and, and listen to what God has to say to us, and so that's what we're in in First Peter, and the more I studied this section for this morning in, pre in preparation for the message, the more I began to see this these verses, uh, 13 through 17, is really a continuation of a, a bigger message that Peter has started, I think, in last week's verses, verses 8 through 12. And so if Gary and I weren't both so long-winded, we probably would have just combined that whole thing as one section and preached just one sermon. But as it is, uh, Peter's overarching point here that we need to get this morning is uh, basically what you see implied there in the title for the sermon. It's that we need to be righteous. We ought to be righteous. God calls us to be righteous. He instructs us, Peter instructs us in verse 8, to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. In other words, be righteous. Peter says be righteous. And then Peter is going to go on to give us a long list of reasons why we should be righteous. And so we looked at the first four reasons last week, and we'll look at five more today. For starters, in verse 9, he said, you were called to it. We looked at this last week. You were called to it. And really, that is the only reason we should need, as believers, to be righteous. It's because God's told us to, period, end of story. And yet, because Peter knows that we struggle so much at times with this calling to be righteous, he doesn't stop there. He's going to go on and give us eight more reasons to be righteous. So he continues in verse 9, even if you don't do it, if we don't do it for the best reason, for God's own sake, if we're not righteous purely because he calls us to, then at least selfishly be righteous that you may obtain a blessing. In verse 9, he says that you may obtain a blessing. Matthew 5, 6, 
Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. God promises blessing to those who follow his commands. And what kind of blessing does he promise? Peter gives us a glimpse in verse 10. In our third reason, he says, you'll love life and you'll see good, de- good days. Obtain this blessing that you love life, see good days. There's peace and joy that comes from righteous living. As Gary's sermon last week was titled, it's the good life. The righteous life is the good life. And finally, Peter told us last week to be righteous that the eyes and the ears of the Lord may be open to you. He quotes Psalm 34 to remind us that God looks out for his own, for the righteous, with a special kind of providence, and he hears the prayers of the righteous in a special kind of way that he doesn't hear the prayers of the unrighteous. That's a, that's a biblical truth supported elsewhere. And so to those four reasons for righteousness from last week, Peter adds five this morning, and because for those of us who, who are used to being at West Hills, you've become accustomed to Gary's mnemonic devices for sermons, uh, for committing this stuff to memory. I tried to package this as the A, B, C's, and D's of reasons for, for righteousness. And then right before we went to print the bulletin, of course, I found one more reason that I had to slot in there. Uh, and so you're just going to have to remember that C is the most common answer on multiple choice tests. And so you've got a second C on there, A, B, C, C, D. Um, but let's dive in. So reason number one for this morning is a really practical one. Peter says, do it to avoid harm. Be righteous to avoid harm. He says in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Who wants to beat up on the nice kid in class? Who wants to be the one known for being mean and picking on like the nicest guy in the office? You just just come off looking like and feeling like a jerk, right? You know who probably didn't receive a lot of wedgies growing up? Mother Teresa. I mean, who wants, who wants to be the one who, who picks on Mother Teresa, right? And Scripture supports this idea elsewhere, too. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Paul says in Romans 13, Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. Be righteous, and you, you don't have to worry about it. And so when Paul encourages us in Romans 12... If possible, so, as far, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. And who wouldn't want that? Who doesn't want peace, shalom, to characterize all of their relationships with everybody else? So far as it depends on you, the best way to do that, Paul says, and Peter says here, is to be righteous. Be righteous. And yet, as soon as those words come out of Peter's mouth or his pen, he's going to turn in verse 14 there. He's going to immediately qualify that observation and acknowledge that it's not always that simple, is it? I mean, that that reality is not always that simple because for every Mother Teresa, there's a Martin Luther King Jr. There's a Gandhi. There's a Jesus. there's, There's someone else who's famous for pursuing righteousness who was persecuted not in spite of it, but because of it. They got killed because they were too good. Why? Why, why, would, why would someone be killed for being too good? Well, because of 2 Corinthians 6.14. And see, here's, as a quick aside this morning, here's what I want us to appreciate. Christianity is the most rational religion in the world. It, it just makes sense of all the evidence that we see around us. What we heard all over the news and in social media in the wake of the Parkland, Florida tragedy this past week was what? It's people's shock. And disbelief, they're in utter shock and disbelief, isn't it? I mean, it's the same response every time something like this happens. I can't believe it. Despite the fact that we've already had over 30 mass shootings in 2018 in the U.S. alone, in the last month and a half. And we will have more next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. But, but yet, people are, are utterly shocked and and unable to believe it. Why? It's because the prevailing worldview of our day today and and this society in our day and age cannot account for that kind of evil. If your worldview demands that you believe that we're all basically inherently good people and that the cure for our societal woes is more of us, the cure for us is more of us. I mean, do we see the irrationality of that? That is not Christianity. That's postmodern humanism and it has no answer for Parkland, Florida. It has no answer 
for, for any of the tragedy we see around us, ultimately. Especially not the kind of tragedy that we could have this innate desire and drive and urge to oppose and resent and kill someone as beautiful as Jesus Christ when he comes to us with healing and good news, that we would crucify him. Only the Bible can explain that. 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship has light with darkness? It's that simple. The Bible says it makes total sense. We were born sinful, Psalm 51.5, that far from being innately good, our hearts are wicked and deceptive, sick and beyond all else, Jeremiah 17.9, and that because of the darkness that inherently lives inside us, in our unredeemed hearts, when light enters the world, John 3, Jesus says we naturally in our flesh, we hate it. Because light is a direct threat to the very existence of darkness. The two cannot coexist. Light exposes us for who we really are. And so until we come to know not just the goodness and the holiness of this great light of the world, of Jesus, but his mercy and his compassion, his forgiveness and his love, if we haven't trusted in the hope of his promise that he came not to condemn the world, but to save it, to rescue it, to love it, then we're naturally going to feel threatened by him. So threatened that we'll do whatever we can to avoid being exposed in our sinfulness. We'll crucify him because the guilt and the shame of coming to grips with it is too much to bear. Now, on a lighter note, be honest with yourselves for a second. Isn't there a little part of you that still has difficulty being around the very best people that you know? Is that true? It's, it's sometimes difficult to be around like the really, really best people you know. Anybody say that? I, in college, I had a, a friend named Lacey Elrod, just the most beautiful, sweet, tender, kind, gentle soul you could ever imagine. Uh, can't, couldn't imagine her saying a, a harsh word to anyone. Um, she was beautiful inside and out, fun and smart, and no one dated her. No one dated her. My friend Jamie tried asking her. They, they went out for less than a week. I was like one, maybe two dates. And he was like, dude, I, I don't know how to be around her. I feel like I just have to constantly apologize for who I am. Like I'm tainting her, her innocence and her goodness with, with who I am. Who is your Lacey Elrod, right? I mean, does everybody kind of know someone like that? If you don't, maybe you're Lacey Elrod, and that's why none of us date you, right? It's because you make us feel bad about ourselves, so stop being so righteous. But no, Peter's going to say, no, we should all strive to be that righteous. We should all strive to be Lacey Elrods. Why? Because reason number two for pursuing righteousness is that we'll be blessed in that suffering. We'll be blessed in that suffering. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. And we know that according to Jesus in John 15, it's not an if but a when. It's not an if we'll suffer but a when. He says suffering is inevitable. For those who follow him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so Paul too says in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can't get any more clear than that. That's unequivocal. We will be persecuted. And yet both Jesus and Paul also promise that our suffering will ultimately and eternally be worth it. It will be worth it because God will reward and bless us through it because of it. Jesus promises in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So too, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. We're being afflicted, Paul says. That's the context of 2 Corinthians. Our affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So I ask you this morning, in humility, brothers and sisters, if Jesus expects us to suffer for our righteousness just as he did, then do we? Do we? Are, we? are we suffering for our faith? 
Maybe we don't suffer like Peter's original listeners to this would have. We don't suffer under the threat of being crucified upside down like Peter, being beheaded like Paul, being impaled on stakes and lit on fire like Christians all around Rome uh, just at the the same time that Peter is writing this letter? But do we suffer like Lacey Elrod? I mean, do we lose dates because of our righteousness? Is it hard for people to be... Do we lose friends? Can you think... I mean, don't raise your hand, but can you think of a relationship that you have lost in the last year, two years, three years, because of your righteousness, because of your faith. Maybe it was a gradual thing over time, your interests, your, your sense of humor, your outlooks on life just kind of grew apart, but maybe it was an abrupt thing. It was, you can remember the distinct conversation and moment when things took a turn south in that relationship, in that, in that long-standing friendship, because of your commitment to Christ. Have you lost family members? Jesus said, I came to separate a son from his, from his father, to divide a daughter from her mother. Is there a division within your family because of the gospel? Maybe it's not a complete rift, but are there moments of palpable awkwardness and tension during your family reunions? I mean, do you suffer a little bit ever since you opened up and tried to share Jesus with your sister-in-law and now, and she politely excused herself from the room and now things are awkward? I mean, is there, is there that kind of suffering at least? Have you lost promotions? I would just tell you all, the only reason I'm here with you at West Hills today, by God's providence, is because I was let go from my previous job because of my faith. Because as a Christian youth minister at a very secular, diverse boarding school, that's a fine line to walk. And so I ask you, how about you? In your secular, diverse workplace, has your unwillingness to cut corners to exaggerate the truth, to throw your other coworkers under the bus, to brown nose and suck up to, a, to an unrighteous boss? Has your evangelism in the workplace, has any of that, has it cost you professionally? Have you lost interest or hobbies over the years? As you grew in your hunger and your thirst for righteousness and you realize, man, this is incompatible with my walk with Christ. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Are there movies and TV shows, music, that you'd love to watch, listen to, that everybody else is talking about how great they are, that you, that you checked out and you're like, I just, it doesn't sit right with me. Video games, internet sites, extracurricular activities, dating practices, lifestyle choices. Has our faith cost us anything? Does it cost us? Any sacrifice, any suffering, any persecution? I hope and I pray that if I did ask for a show of hands, that you would say Yes. That's, that's, that's my prayer because I think Jesus makes it so clear here. And yet he says, be assured this morning, if that is true for you, be assured, Christian, that when you do suffer for his sake, you will be blessed. If not in this life, then in the life to come. You will be blessed. That's his promise to us this morning. But if we don't suffer for righteousness, if it hasn't cost us anything, if, if, there's, if there's no suffering at all, What's the saying? That nothing worth having in life comes easy? I mean, if our faith comes easy, is it worth having? Is is it even faith at that point? Jesus and Paul and Peter here all seem to be saying, if it's truly faith, it will always cost us something. Do we pray regularly as Hebrews 13.3 instructs us for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world today, still today, who suffer under the very real threat, maybe the daily reality of persecution like the type that Peter's talking about, imprisonment, torture, death. If you don't, if you're not in the habit of praying for them, go home today, sign up for email newsletters from Voice of the Martyrs, and let that be a daily reminder, weekly reminder to you to pray for them. And let it be a challenge to us as well, church, 21st century American church, if our society continues on the path that we're on and becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, will we persevere in the faith under duress? When small businesses get shut down for refusing to compromise their Christian values, when our kids get suspended from public schools for voicing their worldviews, their opposing worldviews, when inevitably our own church's tax exemption status gets revoked because we refuse to compromise on our Christian values. These are, let's don't live with our head in the sand. These are things that are already starting to happen and they're only going to continue. This cultural tide is probably, short of another great revival, not going to be turned back. And this stuff is, will happen in our day. 
And yet Paul, Peter, Jesus, and James, James 1 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, for he will receive the crown of life. And so Peter can exhort us in verse 14, with boldness and with an eternal hope, have no fear, nor be troubled. So friends, I encourage you this morning, let's don't let our Facebook posts be characterized by fear and anxiety, by shock and disbelief. How could this happen? Because Jesus told us to expect this kind of stuff, right? And yet he promises too, behold, I am with you always. Peter's third reason to pursue righteousness is that when we do, Christ is honored. He says in verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our remaining time together this morning. Verse 15, unpacking it. How do we honor Christ the Lord as holy? Peter says we do it by being prepared to make a defense for our hope. According to Peter, Defending and sharing our faith is an integral part of what it means to be righteous. Our apologetics and our evangelism, and I'm going to lump those two things together this morning because in today's world, I think our evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, will always, virtually always, require us to defend our faith, apologetics. Those two things, they are not optional elective classes for like AP Christians, all right? for pastors and elders and the like. These are requirements. These are core requirements for graduation. If we want to take seriously our calling to be righteous, we must take seriously our calling to be prepared with the defense and share our faith with boldness. It honors him. That's what Peter tells us. It honors him. That is how we are righteous. Now, if we're going to do that, if our apologetics and our evangelism are going to be honoring to Christ, They must be characterized by six characteristics that Peter lists for us here in verse 15. So let's look at each of those. First, it must be heartfelt. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ. That means our defense to others must be grounded in and flow naturally from our love for Christ. Let me say that again. Our defense to them comes from our love for him. Otherwise, what you'll actually be doing is defending not the hope of Christ in you, but defending yourself. You will over-personalize objections to the faith when you hear things like, how can any modern thinking person still believe in X? Or how can anyone who who claims to care and be loving and compassionate still oppose Y? You'll hear those things and you'll feel like your intelligence and your morality is being called into question. But we need to remember here that being prepared to offer a defense is different from being defensive. We're called to be prepared to offer a defense, not to be defensive. And so if our apologetic flows out of a need to self-justify, to win an argument, it will be petty, reactionary, combative, and self-glorifying. But if it flows out of a heart that is filled with the love and the hope of Christ, and a heart that is filled with the love for lost and broken hearts of those who we're, who we're conversing with, who don't know him yet but desperately need to, if it's filled with that kind of love, then we will be compassionate and spirit-led and Christ-honoring. And I want to say one more thing on this point about heartfelt. I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks back that the number one reason we Christians offer for not sharing our faith more frequently is that we feel under-equipped. I don't have all the answers. And that's the number one excuse that we give. But scripture, I think, is clear that that is not the actual number one real root problem. The Bible says it is not so much a head issue, I don't have enough knowledge to back up my faith, as it is a heart issue. If we're brutally honest with ourselves, maybe we don't love Jesus as much as we think we do. And I say that in humility, and I'm preaching to myself this morning as much as I am to you. If I, if I hold back from sharing and overflowing, my heart overflowing with the love and the good news of Christ, it's probably not so much a head thing as a heart thing. Do I love him as much as I, as I would like to say that I do? 
Peter says it's about our hearts. Do we really think that Peter and Paul and the apostles had all the answers? I mean, read the Gospels. Most of the time, they don't seem like they have any answers. But it doesn't stop them from sharing. Why? Because this they knew with all their hearts. His wounds had paid their ransom. With all their hearts. And so their love compelled them to share that beautiful news with everyone. Because when you're in love, you don't have to have all the answers, do you? I mean, have you ever tried to talk sense into someone who is in love? Good luck, right? I mean, like, dude, I, I know that you're crazy about her, but you've been on two dates. Maybe pump the brakes with the proposal, right? <laughs> because when you're in love, I mean, that, that's it. Friends, are we in love with Jesus? Do our hearts overflow with love for him? If he's a theological abstraction to us, it's no wonder we don't share him with our friends. Our evangelism has to come from the heart. Secondly, it must be obedient. Peter says, honor Christ as Lord. The ESV says, honor Christ the Lord, but I like the NIV and the NRSV and others here who say, honor Christ as Lord. To honor Christ as Lord, as kurios, as master, is to willingly and joyfully submit ourselves in humility to his ownership and his governance over our lives. Paul puts it in this way. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. That means that when everything in me says, man, I really just don't want to bring up Jesus right now and make this super awkward and uncomfortable, that the moment that I made a decision for him, the point of my salvation, I essentially forfeited all other rights to, to be the one calling the shots. He is Lord. And, and if the Holy Spirit inside me is whispering, tell them. Tell them. They need to know. Share me with them. Then that is the only voice that matters. That's the only one worth listening to. So it's a very simple question for us. Are we going to obey Jesus when he commands us with his parting words to us in Mark 16? Go, preach the good news to all creation. Because when we do, our righteous obedience to him is honoring to him. Thirdly, we honor Christ when we are prepared, when we're ready, when we're equipped I've also mentioned recently how some of us misinterpret Luke chapter 12 when Jesus says, when they bring you uh, before the authorities, do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you are to say. We misinterpret this. There's two ways we can read that. One is to say, well, I don't need to think about my faith at all because if I ever get in a conversation with someone who asks me for answers, then God will just supernaturally intervene. But because Peter, here in 1 Peter 3.15, specifically says, be prepared, I think, and we know Scripture doesn't contradict itself, I think we have to throw that interpretation out the window. The other way to read what Jesus says here in Luke 12 is to hear him as saying, it is precisely because you have spent the time in God's Word studying. It's precisely because you have checked the extra-biblical, scientific, and historical evidence. It's because you've examined the opposing arguments from every possible angle in order to prepare yourself to offer a defense. Now, when you find yourself in these tough conversations, now you won't have to worry. Now you don't have to worry. You'll have a confidence that comes only through a proper equipping. Now the Holy Spirit can teach you what you are to say in that hour by prompting you to recall that scripture that you've committed to memory, prompting you to recall the evidence that you've, you've poured over. You know, Galileo famously said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who endowed us with the sense and reason and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. And I think Peter echoes that here. Why would God bless us with brains if he wanted us to shut them off? It doesn't make any sense. God calls us to faith, but never ignorance. And so if you, if you feel un, underprepared, if that's, if that's your excuse, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm prepared, I'm ready, I'm equipped, then please grab me or one of our other elders after the service. Grab Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, will you raise your hand? I'm going to put him on the spot. Jeremy directs uh, Faith Ascent Ministries, which is the Christian apologetic ministry in town. What a great resource to have. Find him after the service, and he will give you resources. Checks in the mail. Checks in the mail. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, fourth, fourth, because, listen, this is too important. Christ is honored when we're prepared. 
He's honored when we're prepared to make a defense. Fourth, we honor Christ when our evangelism is open. Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, make make a strategically timed, well-planned out defense to those with whom you've built up careful, good relationships over time. That is, that is one of the great lies, I think, of evangelism that we've come to believe in, in the world of Christianity today. Peter says, always, with anyone, it's unbiblical to say, this, this idea, this notion that you have to build a relationship with people first, and then you'll have a foundation from which to share your faith. Listen, relationships are great. I think Jesus wants us to have lots of them. I think he wants us to grow them and strengthen them, especially those with unbelievers, But friends, do not buy the lie that a relationship is a prerequisite for you sharing your faith. That it's the foundation for our evangelism. The truth of the gospel is the foundation for our evangelism. Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation for our evangelism. Amen? It's not your relationship. Otherwise, it's you want them coming to to, to faith because they love you so much? No, it's because they love him so much. And from what I can tell, Peter didn't know the 3,000 people he preached to after the Holy Spirit descended in Acts 2. Philip didn't know the eunuch he led to Christ in Acts 8. Paul didn't know the Philippian jailer in, in Acts 16, or Claudius the Tribune, or Felix the governor, Portius Festus, or King Agrippa. Paul didn't know any of them. I mean, there is virtually no examples, almost, in the New Testament. Where, where, the, where the apostles carefully develop these relationships over time, and I'm going to be calculated before I share the God. That's just not what they did. They did that with their discipleship. But, but it was like, I mean, they led with Jesus. That was the conversation starter for them because it was too important to wait. So please, let's keep building loving, trusting relationships with those who need to hear the good news. Let's do that, but let's also keep an open mind and an open heart to the possibility and the inevitability that God can and does desire to use any time, any place, any interaction, anyone as an opportunity for us to share our faith. Amen? Let's, let's be people who earnestly pray and beg God for those kinds of opportunities. Jesus said there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Nothing could bring Christ more honor and glory than that. You want to be righteous? Go share your faith with someone. I mean, nothing brings him more honor and glory than that. So let our prayer today be, Father, put that sinner who needs repentance in my path today. Let our paths cross today and give me the boldness that Peter had that Paul had, that the apostles had, to share my faith. Fifth, our evangelism must be hopeful. Hopeful. Notice Peter says, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. He doesn't say, make a defense for the truth that is in you. He could have, but he doesn't. Because he wants to emphasize that our evangelism must be hopeful. Jesus' evangelism was so hopeful. It was truth-filled, of course. But man, when he preached the good news, people just came alive with hope. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can't you just feel the hope bubbling up within you when you hear him say that? The woman at the well did. She said, sir, give me this water. There's hope there. We can contrast that with the students from Bob Jones just down the road from me in college who used to take turns on their soapbox on the corner of the busiest intersection in downtown Greenville with megaphones and signs that read, repent or burn in hell. There may be truth in that, but is it hopeful? I mean, does anybody think that Jesus is honored and glorified in that? I would argue that that's not even evangelism at that point. Evangelism literally means good news, right? It's the good news. And friends, the world so desperately needs this hope that only comes through the good news of the gospel. We have got to reframe, retrain our minds and our outlooks on evangelism in this way. Let me just ask you this. For those of you who are believers, looking back on your own life now in hindsight, 
life before your salvation, your conversion, don't you wish that someone had gone out on a limb? Don't you wish that people had pushed harder? Don't you wish that people had, had tried every means possible to break through to you with the hope of the gospel sooner and saved you the years of rebellion and your sin and your unrighteousness? Don't you wish? I mean, I know I do. So let's don't let the enemy bog, bog us down with worrying about, oh, am I going to offend them or Uh, is this relationship going to be awkward going forward? Man, if it's really true, and if it's really hopeful, if it's really good, good news, then what kind of friends are we not to share it? And honestly. My last comment on hope here, before point number six, is we can't forget that this is hope in the middle of suffering. Remember, Peter's context here. He's writing to believers who are suffering for their faith, and yet he declares, church, they need to know about our hope. And the world looks at Peter and says, are you kidding me? Like they laugh. The world says, hope, we are, we are crucifying you upside down and beheading you and lighting you on fire. Where is the hope in that? And the world doesn't get it, that our hope is different from the world's. The world's hope is circumstantial. It's it's based totally on your circumstances, but godly hope transcends our present circumstances. It's hope that doesn't get extinguished in our suffering. It gets ignited. It gets intensified in our suffering. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the object of our hope is not located in this world, and that makes our hope transcendent and eternal and unshakable. Our hope is in him, and he does not disappoint. Amen? And listen, I, I'm not, I don't want to be dismissive on this point, because I'm on the prayer team here, and so I hear your prayer request every week, and, and we pray with you, and we, and we suffer alongside you as, as pastors and a, prayer, and a prayer team. I know, I know what you're going, I know the kind of junk that you're going through in life right now. I know. And more importantly, he knows. You need to hear that this morning. God knows. He has not forgotten about you. And hear the promise of the Lord this morning. He wants to give you something even better than protection and insulation from that suffering. He wants to give you sanctification and eternal blessing through your suffering. It is the very tool that he wants to use to shape your heart more and more into the likeness of his son. And so take heart, brothers and sisters, for those of you who feel like you are in the midst of suffering right now, we have a hope in the midst of the storm. Amen? Lastly, point number six here about our evangelism. It must be loving. How are we called to make our defense? With gentleness and respect. Jesus made people feel valued, respected, and loved. He was gentle and kind with them. Of all people who had every right to beat up on on, on sinners and come down hard on them and leave them feeling judged and eternally damned. And yet, what does it say that Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery? Woman, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Those are beautiful words. And so we, we follow his example and we respect those who we disagree with by listening to them, really listening to them not just waiting for our next time to jump in in the conversation. We listen to them and hear them out. We're gentle with them by calmly responding in love, even if they get upset and and they get heated. Because we know that our actions speak louder than our words. And we know that they might not remember a single reason that you gave them for the hope that is within you walking away, but they will, I guarantee you, they will remember how you made them feel as they walk away from the conversation might not remember your arguments, they'll remember how you made them feel. Friends, we've got to remember it's possible to win the argument and lose the war. If we don't treat others with the same gentleness and respect that Jesus did, he is honored when we love them like he did. Love them. 
We've got two final brief but important reasons to be righteous. Number four, when we're righteous, we keep our conscience clean. Peter says in verse 16, have a good conscience. Now, the author of Hebrews explains how this works to us. At the moment of our salvation, when we first say yes in surrender to Christ, our conscience is wiped totally clean. Hebrews 9 says, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That is amazing news. All our sin, all our guilt, all our shame was nailed to the cross with Jesus. It's what we sang about this morning. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, right? The gospel that Scott reminded us of during our, our, our time of confession there. And yet we also know that there is a place for confession. There is an ongoing place for confession in the believer's life because it is possible over time, after our conscience has been cleaned, to once again muddy and murky up our consciences with unrighteousness that stains them once again. We hear this in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, holding faith, keeping faith, maintaining faith in a good conscience, that's what we're called to. Because the flip side is, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. It's possible to shipwreck our faith by not keeping a clean conscience. And in reality, to, to a certain extent, that should be true for us. Every time we sin, we should be convicted in our consciences. You know, that should be a, a, a conviction, a, a stain there until we go to the Lord and confess. I love John MacArthur's analogy here. He says the conscience functions like a skylight, not like a lamp. It does not produce its own light, but merely lets moral light in. The Holy Spirit is the light. And because of that, the Bible teaches the importance of keeping a good or clear conscience. So he, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 3 to keep a good conscience. It's one of the requirements for deacons in the church. Peter says, be righteous, keep your skylights clean so that you may be the best possible conduit of the light of the Holy Spirit and of Christ's love to others. And practically speaking, so that you can sleep better at night. And right? Like, it's wonderful to have a clear conscience. It's not wonderful to not have a clear conscience, right? Have you ever gone through stretches of like days or weeks at a time when you look back and you're like, I was just too stubborn or, or too, maybe you were too shameful or guilty. You felt too guilty. You couldn't give it to him and confess. And you, and you, you tried to go to bed with a guilty conscience. How did you sleep? How was your work during that stretch? How were your relationship, your marriage during that stretch? It affects every other area of our life. And so we contrast that with the way that we feel walking out of church here every Sunday morning. It's the way I hope you feel walking away. It's the way I feel. It's, it's why I'm here every Sunday. I mean, you pay me to be here, but I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'd do it anyways. I, I'd come anyways. <laughs> Because I need this. I need to be, the, 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 that, that cleansing of the conscience. I mean, this is like a, a shower for my soul every Sunday coming to church. And I, I freshen up, take French baths throughout the week with my daily devotionals and my life group and, and my prayer time. But this is my deep cleanse every Sunday. And praise God that when we do inevitably, we mess up and we leave smudges on our skylights of our consciences that our own righteousness is not the window cleaner, but the solvent that God uses to clear our conscience. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but I, I cannot offer myself the kind of absolution of guilt that I need time and time and time again. I can't, I can't offer myself that. I have to trust, and I'm able to trust. How, be, how wonderful. How, how wonderful to trust in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ whose blood alone can clear our consciences, wipe us white as snow. Hebrews 10 says, we, Since we have a great high priest, let us draw near in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. He alone can do that. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Last point. 
Last reason to be righteous. Verse 17, Peter exhorts us to be righteous even in the face of suffering because in so doing, we will do God's will. How could it be that God would will for us to suffer? And not just that God would will for us to suffer, but that he would will for us to suffer for his sake. Like when, when all I'm trying to do, God, is to, is to obey you and to pursue righteousness, and this is the, the, the pain, I mean, suffering is what I'm met with, how could God possibly desire that, ordain that? Why does he call us to that kind of suffering, and why does he call that kind of suffering a blessing? Why is it so honoring to Christ? Friends, I think it's because nothing brings God more glory than conforming us more and more into the likeness of his Son, and nothing conforms us more into the likeness of his Son. Nothing is more Christ-like than suffering for, Christ, for righteousness' sake. If God's goal for us is to make us like Jesus, how better to do it than to let us suffer for righteousness? What's more essential to who Jesus was? The Apostle Paul makes the point better than I can, so I'll just quote him here. Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, because we know that for those who God loves, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Who he called, he justified. Who he justified, he also glorified. And friends, he glorifies us in our suffering. That is how he glorifies us. That's why Paul sounds almost jealous in Philippians 1 when he says, to the church there, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Man, you get to not only believe in Jesus, you get to suffer for him. Is that, is that, our, is that our outlook? Because Paul knows that suffering is the most precise, acute, accurate instrument of sanctification in the Lord's hands by which he conforms us into the image of his Son. And so, brothers and sisters, I'll leave you with this. Let us do God's will by pursuing righteousness, come what may. And if it be suffering, then let us have the strength and the courage and the faith and the perseverance, the boldness and confidence to stand and say with the Apostle Paul, when he says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I might, may gain Christ, be found in him, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to be like you, and, and we know that, more importantly, you want us to be like you. You call us to take up our crosses and follow you. It's an instrument of death and torture, of suffering. You are unequivocal about your calling. You will suffer. And yet, Jesus, move in our hearts this morning, not just our minds, but move in our hearts. Draw us to you. Increase our love for you. That our, that our desire to be like you and to know you in your suffering and to love you, to be counted worthy of the resurrection of the dead, that that love would trump any fear, any anxiety, any embarrassment, any hang-ups, any insecurities about our lack of knowledge, anything else that would stop us from coming to you, from 
chasing after you from pursuing righteousness, come what may. Jesus, let us do it for our sake because we know that righteousness and life with you is the good life. Let us do it for your sake because you call us to it in obedience. And let us do it for the sake of the world too. Give us eyes and ears and hearts for the brokenness of the world all around us. Those in our midst who we come into contact with on a daily basis who don't have the hope of Christ in their hearts. Give us a love for them. Move us in boldness and confidence. And Jesus, now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, this visible tangible reminder of the suffering that you endured for our sake on the cross, bearing all our shame, all our guilt, all our iniquity, all our, our, all our suffering, everything unrighteous in us. Would you wipe our consciences clean once again to worship you in purity and in truth? honor and the praise. It's in Christ's name we pray.